Well, the passage this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You could find it in your bulletins. You could read along in your own Bibles if you prefer. Let me ask you to stand if you're able. We stand for the reading of the Word of God. This is different than many of the things we've done this morning. We have prayed and we've confessed, but these have been our words. This is now the Word of God. Breathed by God through human authors, given to, to the church that we might know Him and might glorify Him more fully. And so this is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning as we conclude this book, we ask that you would be at work. Pray, Lord God, that you would show us what it means to fear you and to keep your commandments. Would you help us to see these things, to live accordingly, but also to acknowledge our shortcomings, that as we cast our hopes and burdens upon you, you would be gracious. You would move towards us through your spirit. You would work among us for your glory, and you would show us more of your son, Jesus Christ, who has come on our behalf. We love you. We thank you, and we ask that everything we say and do would be pleasing to you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. I've already had a few people ask me, there's no whiteboard this morning, okay? There was nothing to draw. So this morning we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let me introduce it by saying this. Many of you have probably um, at least interacted with someone who's a Boy Scout or had some sort of a relationship with the Boy Scouts yourselves. I was a Boy Scout growing up, and when I was a Boy Scout, there were three high adventure bases located around the United States. There was the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, where you would go and you would canoe for a week or two at a time, and you would camp and you would fish. I never went to the Boundary Waters. I wish I had. There was sea base in the Florida Keys. You would sail for a week or two, and you would do some deep sea fishing and snorkeling, and I did that. It was an amazing experience. And then there was sort of the mecca or the mothership of all high adventure bases, and that was called Philmont Scout Reservation in New Mexico. My grandfather went to Philmont, my dad went to Philmont, and my brother and I, when we were young teenagers, we also went to Philmont. Philmont was thousands and thousands of acres in the mountains of New Mexico where you went and you did backcountry backpacking. It was amazing, okay? You were off the grid, you were off the radar, you backpacked, we went for two weeks, backpacked nearly 200 miles. And every evening was a different adventure. Well, when we got back from Philmont, 
Everyone was asking, how was the trip? What did you do? Tell us about it. And trying to articulate what you did over two weeks without any cameras to capture uh, the trip and the days of the trip, it kind of all merged together. And you were able to say, well, early on the trip, I think we did this, and then towards the middle we did this, the end we did that. Um, but as time went on, those details become less and less clear, more and more vague to the point I don't really remember what I did in Philmont. I remember there was backpacking. I remember that we didn't take a shower for two weeks. Other than that, I don't remember what we did at Philmont. Now, I say that to tell you I believe the book of Ecclesiastes sort of feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like a, a long journey that we've taken. We've hiked many miles through, through many contours, and it's probably kind of hard to remember everything that we've read in this book. It's been three and a half months since we started the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's lots of details that have kind of become vague in the process. You probably forget what we talked about in the first and the second and the third chapter. And in case you have forgotten, let me just tell you, the end of this 12th chapter is a summary of the entire book. So if you've forgotten that chapters 1 through 5 are about meaning and purpose in life, can't be found in this world, if you've forgotten that chapter 6 is about the soul, how the soul is only satisfied in God alone, how chapter 7 is about living in righteousness, and chapter 8 is about living with justice, and chapter 9 is about living with sobriety and a circumspect life, and 10 and 11 are about living in wisdom, if you've forgotten all that, then chapter 12, the ending of this book, is the summary of everything you need to know. I hope that a year from now, and two years from now, and five years from now, when you think back and think, oh, there was that one time we worked through the book of Ecclesiastes, I hope you'll remember at the very least the summary of the book, that it will stick with you as you think about this book, okay? So this is the summary. This is exactly what Solomon says in verse 13 when he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. That's his way of saying, this is a summary of everything the book of Ecclesiastes is about. The end of the matter, all has been heard. And so this morning, as we talk about the summary of the book, here's what we're talking about, okay? You can see in the insert in your bulletin, three points, very brief points. We're going to talk about how God has spoken to us in this book, why God has spoken to us in this book, and what he has spoken to us, okay? Three points. The first point, how God has spoken, it begins in verse 9. In verse 9, it says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And I'll tell you that as Solomon begins this portion of the text, you can probably hear it. He speaks in the third person. This isn't strange. It may sound strange to you, but he did this at the beginning of the book. He's going to do it now at the end of the book. He's speaking in what I would call the kingly third person. Okay? It's actually a very common thing in pre-modern literature when a king or someone with great authority or clout, when they would speak, they would speak in the third person. It is like in The Wizard of Oz, when The Wizard of Oz behind the screen concludes what he's saying, he says, the great Oz has spoken, right? And what he means is, I finished what I was saying, but he speaks as one with great authority. That's the kingly third person. That's what Solomon's doing here. He refers to himself as the preacher, as he did in the first chapter, so he does here. Koaleth is the Hebrew word. Koaleth, the preacher. Solomon's name is never said in the book, but he refers to himself as the preacher. The preacher has spoken. And verse 9 says that the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing, studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. You get the picture. The preacher, Solomon, has gathered wisdom. 
He has gone out to seek and to find what is truth and what is good for man. And he has taken those things and he has brought them together and ordered them in such a way that you might read a book like Ecclesiastes and say, well, that makes sense. That's good truth. That's good wisdom. So also, he compiles truth in the book of Proverbs. Now look, though, it's so important at how how this collection of truth is described in verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. Okay, There's two descriptions there for God's word, for God's revelation to us. Did you hear them? He said he sought to find words of delight. That's one description, delightful words. And he sought to find words of upright truth. Okay, Upright truth and delightful words. Now let me say something, okay? I think these two very important categories that describe God's revelation to us, they describe this book of Ecclesiastes, I think we often often will think about one but not the other, okay? We often think about God's truth and how upright it is and how, how honest it is and pure and righteous, but we often forget or neglect how delightful it is, okay? These two words, upright truth, that means pure, it means honest, it means clear, it means righteous and holy. That's good. That's God's revelation to us. The word delight means pleasurable, pleasing, satisfying. It is good for the senses, okay? And as I say, I think especially God-fearing Christians, we often emphasize the uprightness of God's truth, but we neglect how delightful it is, how pleasing and satisfying it is. I'll give you a few examples of that. I think about the way that parents, Christian parents, speak to their children, okay? Christian parents, you know you do this, okay? When you speak to your children about what we ought to do in obedience to the Lord, you often speak about how, okay, I know you're not going to enjoy this. This shouldn't make you happy, but this is what's right. You're going to do this, whether you like it or not, okay? Because it's good and it's true. And sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes because our hearts are not oriented to God, His truth is not pleasing. But you know what? There should be probably more conversations that parents have with their children where the parent says, this is what is good and right, and if your heart is good with God, you will delight in it. And it will be good, and it'll be satisfying, it'll be pleasing. You will rejoice in the truth because it's good for you. It's delightful. I think of the way we often describe things in the the Christian life, in the Christian walk. You think about how often marriage is described, and I know this is true, A lot of people speaking to single, young single people, married couples, they'll say, well, marriage is tough. It's so hard. Sometimes you're going to hate each other. That's marriage. And the single people are saying, why would I ever want to get married? Right? But we we neglect the delightful parts of marriage, how good it is, how beautiful two people who love the Lord and are pursuing Him in marriage, how beautiful that is, how pleasurable it ought to be. We neglect that. Sobriety and chastity, right? We speak about sobriety and chastity. And all around college campuses, all across America, Christian pastors and Christian leaders are saying to college students, listen, okay, I know everybody's out there having fun. This isn't going to be fun, but it's, it's the good thing to do. You shouldn't sleep around, and I know that's not enjoyable and it's not what you want to hear, but it's what's good and right, okay? The message ought to be it's good and right and it's delightful and it's pleasurable and it's good for you and it's satisfying to the soul and you will find great reward in God's truth. I also think of 
this has happened many times. I think of how also we, we fail in this area because of laziness or, or neglect of the Word of God. I can't tell you how many parents have walked into my office and have said, woe is me. My children have walked away from the church and they're living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. They're living a wayward life. And, and whenever that happens, the conversation goes something like this. Well, how did you raise them? Did you instill in them the truth of the Word of God? Well, yes, of course. I taught them Christians should marry Christians. Don't move in with anybody until you get married. I said, well, that's, that's good. That's the truth. But have you instilled in them the truth of the Word of God? Have you fully, have you showed them how delightful the Word of God is? And they said, well, I don't, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? Have you memorized the Psalms together? Well, no, we never did that. Have you talked to them about the prophets and the letters from Paul that speak about the pathway to destruction, how pleasurable it seems, but the end of it is only death? Have you talked to them about that? No, we haven't talked about that. Have you meditated upon the commands of the Lord? No, we never did that. And and, and I tell you the truth, in, in the Christian church today, it is as much a problem of Christians who live as what I would call a bumper sticker Christian life, Okay. That is, the summary of our faith is whatever we find on Hallmark cards and bumper stickers. We haven't meditated upon the word of the Lord. And so we don't know how delightful it is because we haven't experienced that ourselves, let alone been able to share that with others. Solomon, as he concludes this book, says the word of God is both uprightly true and pleasant and pleasurable. It is delightful. It is good for you. We ought to recognize both as we uh, uh, immerse ourselves into the Word of God, we ought to recognize that it is both true and it is good. It is satisfying how God has revealed himself. That's the how. That's how this book is written. It is designed to be good, pleasing, true, and upright. I was thinking this morning when I was like, well, I'm not going to draw a picture. I was thinking of bringing uh, some visual aids this morning. I didn't because I thought it would be too tacky. And here I go. I'm going to tell you what I was going to do anyway. Okay, I was going to bring some broccoli and some pineapple, right? And we say broccoli, you have to eat the broccoli. You might not, this is what I say in my house. You don't have to like it, you just have to eat it, okay? And my kids are always like, Dad, stop. That's what broccoli is, and that's kind of the way we view the Word of God. But the Word of God is also like a pineapple. It is satisfying, it's sweet, it is good, and it's good for you both at the same time. That's how Solomon speaks of God's Word. Let us also speak that way of the Word of God uprightly true, and satisfying to the soul. The next point here is not only how has God spoken in this book, but what, uh, why has he spoken to us, okay? And I, if you haven't been asking this question the last three and a half months, you probably should be because we've been reading a book that is really awkward and hard. It, it's a book that has exposed the kind of underbelly of human life in this world, and it hasn't been very uh, glamorous, Right? you have probably walked away thinking, well, that was, that was an awkward passage, or I don't know if I agree with that, or that was really hard. There's a few of you who have said to me the last three and a half months, after I hear preaching from Ecclesiastes, I feel like I need to go home and take a nap, right? This is draining. This is wearing. And if you think about it, the book has covered like three of the most not talked about subjects in humanity, the things we just don't talk about. It has covered death, and it has talked in detail about the shortness of human life. We don't talk about that. Those are things, we, ju- we just don't go there, okay? It has talked about 
the emptiness of life and it has described it in this way. What if a person lives life and they have no belongings at the end of their life and they have no family and they have nothing to account for and nothing to take with them and then they die? What good is that? And you're thinking, well, thanks for being a Debbie Downer this morning. That's what it feels like. It's awkward. We don't talk about those things. The book, I don't know if if you heard it, twice in this book, Solomon used the example of a stillborn child. A stillborn child. We don't we don't talk about that. that. That's a weighty subject that we would rather simply avoid and not talk about. This book has covered it all. Have you asked the question why? Why would God give a book that for three and a half months we read and we feel awkward every time we leave? We feel as if we need to go take a nap because it's weighing on us and it's heavy. I'll tell you the why and it's very clear in the passage. That's verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Okay? God gives, that's the one shepherd, he gives the words of wisdom and the collections of sayings that are here in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he gives them for this purpose. Why? Because they're like goads, and they're like nails firmly fixed. The actual translation of the the nails part is that they're like nails that have been firmly hammered in, firmly pounded into the wood, okay? Now listen, this is a beautiful picture. And for those of you who didn't grow up on a farm, let me just illustrate the picture here. What What is a goad? A goad is a tool or an instrument that a farmer would use to prod the farm animal, okay? It was usually a long stick. Sometimes it had something sharp on the end, or it was used simply to smack or to strike the animal or to prod it or to poke it or to push it. And it was used of the farm animals when they weren't going where they needed to go and they needed to be pushed in the right direction, okay? Sometimes gently, sometimes forcefully. But goads were used by the farmer to direct the farm animals. Now listen, here's the picture. Use your imagination for a second. Children and adults, you can do this. Picture yourself as a farm animal. I don't care which farm animal you pick. Just picture one. Sheep, pig, chickens, donkeys, I don't care. You're a farm animal. And you're doing what farm animals do. And you're grazing in the field. And you're enjoying farm life. And you're going through the day without sort of a care in the world. But as you know, what farm animals do is they get themselves into trouble. The farm animal thinks, I'm going to jump over that fence. I'm just going to knock it down, right? I see the the farmers in the room shaking their heads like, yeah, that's what happens. The farm animal says, well, that grass over there by the edge of that cliff, that looks really good. I think I'm going to go there and get that grass, okay? The farm animal that is startled in the middle of the night and runs from the farm because it has no idea what to do or what's attacking or what's going on is the one that gets itself in trouble. When I was growing up, we had chickens. You know what chickens do? Chickens do the silliest things. Chickens, sometimes you wake up and a chicken had drowned in like three inches of water. And you're like, chicken, what are you doing? Get out of the water. Somehow chickens get in the water and they can't get back out of the water. It's really weird. This is the description of you and God, who is our great shepherd, is the one who takes the goad and is saying, no, 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 don't don't go that way. That's the path that leads to death. That's the pathway that will ultimately result in your destruction. You need to go this way. And he prods and he pushes and he directs. And he constantly is working among his people to direct them to rivers of living water, to goodness and mercy and his grace and his commands and his law and towards him who is our great fulfillment, right? That's the good shepherd. This book is meant to be the goad. Your 
uncomfortability each week is the reality that a goad that strikes a farm animal or a nail that's being driven into wood is jarring and jolting. It's a good thing. You need to be woken up. You, you need to realize that the way that you're inclined to naturally is not the way that is good for you. Right? The, the hammer and the nail analogy is even more beautiful, I think. I was trying to think through this. The picture that Solomon gives, clearly the hammer is God. God's the one doing the hammering. And whether, the, whether it's the wood or the nail that's us and the Word of God, either one is being driven into us or we're being driven into it. I don't know which one is clear, the, the picture. But God, in goading us, is like the hammer driving us into the Word. And we don't want to go there because our natural inclination is not to move towards him, but he is constantly moving us and pushing us and prodding us and directing us to what is good, just like the, the farm animal. I was thinking of an illustration of this. You, you get the picture, right? Slumbering and sleeping in sin, constantly being needed to be woken up to the living God and the work of the Spirit, that, that the hardness of heart is the natural inclination, that the, the world and the prince of the power of the air is at work trying to direct us in such a way that if we follow that path, it leads to death, but our God is constant, and He is at work among His people, pushing them and prodding them, drawing them and wooing them, directing them towards goodness. I, the one illustration I want to tell you is this. Um, and you'll probably get a little laugh out of this. When I was a, a teenager, probably like 13 or 14, I was at youth group. I think I was probably ninth grade. I don't know how old I was. I was in ninth grade. And I was at youth group. We had this youth group, a good youth group, a good youth pastor. And, uh, and I was an immature, irresponsible, rude teenager, okay? And so there was this one night we were at youth group, and the youth pastor said, all right, we're done with sports and games. It's time to get to the Bible study. Uh, next basket, and we're going to the Bible study. And I, was, I had this great idea. I went to my best friend, Chip, and Chip is now a pastor too. We're both pastors. Uh, never would have guessed, but um, I went to him. I said, listen, he just said next basket wins. I got an idea. Let's just keep dribbling, and let's miss our shots, and we could stay here all night. We never have to go to Bible study because he said the next shot. We thought we really, we really got him. And so we, we kept playing basketball, and everybody went down for the Bible study. And like five minutes later, one of the youth group leaders, Mr. Cavanaugh was his name. Mr. Cavanaugh came back upstairs, and Mr. Cavanaugh was a big man, but he was gentle. And he said, he said, boys, everybody's waiting for you down at the Bible study. We're like, no, he told us we, one more shot, one more basket. We're, we haven't gotten one more basket. We're, we're good. And he said, no, boys, everybody's waiting for you downstairs to, the, to go to the Bible study. And, uh, and we said, okay, yeah, we'll be down soon. We'll have one more basket, right? And, uh, and kind, gentle Mr. Cavanaugh, his demeanor changed. And uh, he said, you two, against the wall right now. Right? And we, so we, we kind of cowered against the wall. And he said, that's it. I've had enough of your immaturity, of your disrespect. He said, you will go down to that Bible study and you will learn about Jesus or so help me. And we were like, we were trembling in our boots, right? No more basketball ever again. That is a description of what God is doing in Ecclesiastes, okay? Because we are wayward and we need the waking influence of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts that we might be inclined to God and we might move towards Him not because of us, but because of the work of the Spirit in us. Here's how Charles Spurgeon described that. He said, we declare upon scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief 
that it's so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil, and so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful and supernatural and irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained towards Christ. That's a description of what's happening in this book. The goading, the prodding, the uncomfortableness, the awkwardness, the questions you have to ask, the way you feel drained, the confusion, the questions, all of it is designed to push you towards Christ. And that brings us then to the last point. What what is God prodding us towards? What is He pushing us towards? What is He driving us into? What is the work that God is doing and what does He want us to see? Well, that again would be verse 13. Listen, anyone who's read this book for the last 2,500 years, uh, faithful Jewish followers and Christians would say that the summary of this book, the sentence that describes it all is verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 12 is the one sentence that summarizes Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You, you, you've, you know me well enough to know that uh, I enjoy the original language, and sometimes the original language, the Hebrew in this circumstance, sometimes the Hebrew language adds a word that's really helpful, but sometimes we get addition by subtraction. I think this is one of those cases. The original Hebrew is much shorter. It doesn't include all of what you read in the English, and I think the Hebrew is much more helpful for us. Here's what the Hebrew says. It says, fear God and his commandments keep, for this is man. Fear God and his commandments keep, for this is man. That's it. And you're, you're thinking, well, this is what, man? This is good for man. This, as the ESV says, this is the duty of man. This is all of man. I mean, what, what is, what's being said here? I think the Hebrew is much more clear than the English, okay? The description that we read in verse 13 is simply this. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what man is. Okay, not so much a description of what you're to do as much as it is a description of what you are. This is your identity, right? As Rene Descartes says, I I think, therefore I am. I think Solomon would say, I fear God and keep his commandments, therefore I am. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be designed in the image of God and given a purpose and meaning. Okay, That, that we are to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the identity of humanity. That is the the meaning of of being a human being. That's what I think this passage means. You see, then what that does is that sets us up for everything we need to hear in the rest of God's Word. Because unless we understand this, we cannot understand the gospel. You will not understand the good news until you understand what's happening here in the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, it's very simple. God designed humanity with an implicit purpose, with an implicit meaning, with a DNA, that the design of humanity from the very outset was to fear and revere the living God and to keep His commandments, that we would walk in obedience to Him, and in doing that, we would be human beings. We'd be true human. And so He designed the heart of man uh, to beat, and the lungs to breathe, and the hands to grab, and the feet to walk, and the mind to think and the body to function as it does so that the human beings might fear God and keep His commandments. Listen, if you've been reading this book for any length of time with us, you recognize then that there's a problem. It's a big problem. 
right? The, the sense that you have within you as you look at Ecclesiastes and you say, wow, this mirror of Ecclesiastes, it really reveals something about my heart that I do not like. The feeling you have when you wake up in the morning, you say, well, something's wrong. The, the thing you get when you went to Thanksgiving dinner and there's conflict, which happens at everybody's Thanksgiving dinner, right? Some of you at least. That is not a problem of behavior. It's not a problem of attitude. It's not something that will be fixed tomorrow. It's not something that you can just live a different way and you will change. The sense that you have deep within you that you've been created for a purpose and you cannot live according to that purpose perfectly, that you are not functioning as you were designed to, that is the problem for eternity. That is the problem that we see from the beginning of the pages of this book. Uh, uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah? Jeremiah says, the leopard can't change its spots. Right? Dead human beings can't raise themselves to new life. You cannot change the brokenness of your own heart. You cannot make yourself to live better and to live fully and to glorify God and to fear Him and to keep His commands. You just can't do that. You see, the reality from the beginning of history is that God made Adam and Eve, and He made them to obey Him to keep his commands. We call that the covenant of works. God made an agreement with them. I've designed you. I've made you. Your purpose is to fear me and to keep my commands. If you do that, you will live perfectly, and you will have eternal life with me, and it'll be beautiful. Adam and Eve didn't do that. And, and now, that, that covenant of works, that continues, right? God has designed us that we might live fearing him and keeping his commands. That, that continues, but we're not able to do it. And so generation after generation rises and falls, and generation after generation cannot live according to the purposes of God. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. Can't do that. And so we sense our great need. If we haven't understood our need, we won't understand the good news of the gospel. Because the Gospels tell us that Jesus Christ came to a people who are being held to the covenant of works and could not live according to God's design for them. And so in that failure, they came under the condemnation of the living God. That because they did not function according to design, but rather they lived as rebels, they were under the wrath of God and only good for judgment and condemnation, right? Do you realize that we're, we're rebels? Do you realize that your hearts are wayward? Do you realize that you cannot fear God and keep His commands perfectly? You haven't ever done that. So the good news then is that Jesus Christ came into that world. And what did he do? Well, he just did both of these things perfectly. He feared God and revered him perfectly. He honored his father perfectly. He glorified him as the living God perfectly. And what did he do? He kept his commands and he kept them perfectly. In the passive and active obedience of Jesus Christ, he did all that the father required and he did it perfectly. But he didn't do it for himself. No, of course not. The writer of Hebrews describes it like this. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, that's us, all who have been called since before the foundation of the earth, those who were called may receive the promised inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Jesus Christ came and he died that those who were called but not able to come to God are now made able. 
that through the blood of Christ Jesus, and blood is the initiation of a covenant, that through the blood of Christ Jesus, a new covenant might be made. Not the covenant of works that we live under, but a new covenant of grace. That he who has done on our behalf what we could never do has taken our sin and he's taken our disobedience and he's taken our lack of reverence and fear and he's taken all of the rebellion and the way we thumb our noses at God in all that we do, he's taken that to the cross and he has given to us his perfect obedience. That God the, the Father would look at his children and he would say, perfectly obedient children. Isn't that amazing? By the blood of Christ, we've been redeemed. And so here's the thing. Our purpose is to fear God and keep his commandments. That has never changed. That hasn't been done away with. There's nothing been altered inside of us that makes us different, so we have a different purpose. This is our purpose, to fear God and keep his commandments, okay? But our hope is in the grace of God, okay? We have a purpose, fear God and keep his commandments. Our hope is is that we've not done this by works, but by grace, that no one would boast, that we would have eternal life. And so our purpose is fulfilled in our hope. Our hope in Christ satisfies the demands of the law, for he has done it, he has done what we were unable to do. You have to understand Ecclesiastes. You have to understand the law, the fear of God, the commandments, and you have to understand your own inability your unsatisfactory accomplishing what your design has been, your inability to do that. You have to understand that if you're to ever understand the hope of the gospel, the good news, that Christ has done this on your behalf. And now, if you trust him by faith, recognizing your own inability, that you will have eternal life with God the Father. This is the why, the, the how, the why, and the what of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you forget everything we've talked about the last three and a half months, just remember this, a summary of the book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, help us. Help us to see why Christ coming to earth and his dying on a cross was so necessary. Lord, help us not to diminish the work of Christ. Help us not to see Christ simply as a great example or as a, a, a patron who shows us how to live and to die or as a, a teacher of, of good things and of truths. Lord, help us to see Jesus Christ in light of our purpose, that we would know that we've been designed to revere, to fear you, and to keep your commands. You have made us to live according to your will. Help us, Lord God, to see that we can never do that. That because of sin in our hearts, we're more inclined to darkness than we're inclined to light. We're more inclined to selfish ambition than we are to honor and glorify you. We are more inclined to satisfying the flesh than we are to lift up our souls and to glorify the living God. Help us to see that, Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and then help us in our desperation to cast our burdens upon Christ. Help us to cling to the cross, knowing that our only hope in this world is through the death of our great Savior, 
our mediator, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Help us to cling to Him. And in the great assurance of salvation through the blood of Christ, may we rejoice, may we find great pleasure, beauty, delight, thanksgiving in the privilege of fearing and revering you, in the privilege of keeping your commands. For this is what is pleasing and glorifying to you. We love you. We thank you. It is in your name we ask all of this.